Yes, Lord, today we declare in this place that you are faithful. Lord, we thank you for your great faithfulness. While man has done many great things, God, it pales in comparison to who you are and what you have done for us. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, for the sacrifice that he made for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, it's great for us to be back. We lived here, left here about five years ago, and uh, we have been unable to come back. That 200 miles from here to San Antonio is both a huge psychological and physical barrier, and if you know the drive I'm talking about on I-10, you know, there's times I'd rather jump off a bridge than have to do that drive. It is bad. But we are thrilled to be back. I want you to know I am your, I am your uh, bronze medal. I was uh, asked to come here and, and, and speak by Pastor G because no one else would accept. <laughs> no, that's not true. <laughs> I'm very happy to be back. It's wonderful to see so many friendly faces and familiar friends that we've uh, gotten to know over the time we've been here. Well, this is a very special day for, uh, for us as Americans because for uh, the last 21 years, we've thought about this image that I'll put up here on the screen. Uh, Bob and I, back in the uh, audiovisual booth, have a really high-tech way of communicating. When it's time for the next slide, I'm going to nod and go like this, and that's, how his, that's his signal to flip to the next slide. Uh, this is such a special day for us. It's, uh, it's a very, very somber day. It's uh, at times very painful to think about, and I know I'm not the only one who found watching those videos to be just gut-wrenching, and you could see the frustration on the faces of the firemen and the first responders, and, and I'm right there, I'm right there with you. And it's amazing how I can't remember what I was doing three days ago, but I can remember with, with vivid clarity what I was doing on the morning of 9-11. And I remember I was, I was home at my, my uh, kitchen table working out of the house that day. And at the time, we lived in uh, Huntsville, Alabama, Roll Tide. And um, it, oh, wow, maybe it's, the wound is still a little fresh. In fairness, I have nothing but respect for the Longhorns. We were doing really good just to get out of there alive yesterday. We all know that. But anyway, I remember that moment, and Melissa called me from the, her office where she worked, and she said, turn on the TV. And I said, what channel? And she said, it doesn't matter. It's on every channel. Okay. And I turned on the set and was greeted with this horrible scene. And I, I know you all had the same thing. You had the same feeling. And I was wondering what that would mean to me because I was actually supposed to be up in New York at the World Trade Center that day. Uh, not in the tower, but we had an office space in one of the low-rise towers, but uh, one of the low-rise buildings, rather. But I was supposed to have gone up to the United Nations for the General Assembly and be assigned to provide protection to a visiting head of state. But that visiting head of state delayed his arrival, so I was without an assignment. They just told me to stay at home and wait until the, the next assignment came. Well, my boss called, and I remembered the first thing I said to him was, not a good day for the home team, boss. And he said, nope, not a good day at all. He said, I'm not sure what's going to happen to you. Um, Q 
keep your bags packed, be ready to travel. I don't know what's going to go on. Be ready for anything. A few days later, I did get my assignment. And because I was on the SWAT team on the presidential detail, they reactivated us and they used us to supplement other protective details. Um, and in our case, I got sent to come down actually to Austin, where I supplemented the protective detail of Jenna Bush. And we followed her uh, around campus on uh, UT and after hours, and uh, we'll just kind of leave it at that. <laughs> but it's amazing how everyone remembers that moment. And I was talking to my mother about the attack, and I said, Mom, where were you when this all happened? And she said, oh, I remember. I was visiting a friend. And, uh, you know, they didn't have the computer feeds like we have now. And, and uh, uh, she said, you know, we just had the radio on. And then we heard of the attack, and we were just dumbfounded. And on TV, a, a short time later, I was, I was watching a documentary, and they were talking to a woman, very same question. Where were you at the attack? And she said, oh, I remember. I was, I was away at school. And we were hanging out in the dorm, and, and uh, this one of our girlfriends from down the hall came running in crying, and she told us what happened. Of course, we, we turned on our, our radios, and, and we just had this hunger to learn more news. And they were crying because they immediately recognized what a problem this was. See, they had friends that were of military age. They had uh, brothers that were of military age. Some of them had boyfriends or fiancés already in the military, and they were very, very concerned about the fact that their friends, boyfriends, relatives, and, and uh, uh, other people that they knew would get pulled into a horrible, horrible war, and that they would be exposed to a great deal of danger. Well, this wasn't 9-11 they were talking about. This was 12741 they were talking about. And it's amazing how they say today that 911 is is the Pearl Harbor of our existence. And I think someone that went through both of those events and there's a lot of people that did would agree very very quickly. And let's take let's take stock of that real quick cuz I want to see if if I can make this illustration about some of the feelings that we had at the moment of the, the, the time when you first were aware of the attack, how many will raise their hands and say they felt utter shock and disbelief? Raise your hands if you felt that. Yeah, you're looking at that and you're going, you've got to be kidding me. There's no way that could have happened. All right, after you've processed that, how many would say that they had this burning desire for payback? Oh, come on. It's okay to say it. We all felt it. Yeah, everyone wanted payback. Yeah, we're going to blow something up. I don't know what it is, but we're blowing something up. And we were very, very mad. We wanted revenge. After a while, how many of you felt that when you'd really taken stock of everything, you began to see the enormity of the task, and you began to feel a little bit overwhelmed or even a little bit depressed? A little bit of, I, I don't know how we're going to do this. If you felt that, raise your hand. I see a lot of hands going up. Great. You're the honest ones. And lastly, how many felt at a certain point when the government, the, the leadership, the president, the generals, the admirals, after they had had time to confer, and they came up with a plan 
the response plan. Now, you may not have liked everything about the response plan, but you found relief in the, pl- in the fact that there was a plan. Would you raise your hand? Okay, yep, great. Now, if you are in any way connected to, to uh, mental health or some type of counseling, you probably realized, and a lot of others have realized, that what I just walked through were the steps of the grieving process. The, the shock, the disbelief, the anger, the, 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 the depression, the acceptance, and then finally I see the light at the end of the tunnel. And that's what so many people went through. And we responded by a lot of folks lining up to join the military. A lot of folks lined up to donate. Some donated blood. Others were saying, hey, whatever, I, I, I'm, I'm too old to serve, but I'll do whatever you need me to do. Guess what? That happened the day after 9-11, and it also happened the day after Pearl Harbor. Oh, I'm sorry. Go back one, uh, Bob. That's my fault. And I want to point this out in, in kind of a humorous way, the, and, and specifically the part about being overwhelmed, because I'm going to move us through a series of images, and what I'm trying to help everyone do here today is put themselves in a position where you feel, wow, this is a whole lot more than I bargained for. And to do that, I'm going to have a laugh at my own expense, which I give you plenty of material for that. But anyway, this was back a number of years ago. I was just been uh, transferred over to the Presidential uh, Protection Division, and that's, that's the, the goons that surround the president all the time. And specifically, I was on our SWAT team. And I was only on the team for about two weeks or so, and we took the president out to Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And while we had some downtime, we went whitewater rafting. If you ever happen to be up there in the Tetons, that's a great idea, going whitewater rafting down the Snake River is absolutely beautiful. And as we started, our guide inadvertently ruined the trip for me because she said, hey, fellas, Further downstream, there's a whole bunch of high cliffs. And if you want to, you can climb up this trail up to the top of the cliffs and then jump off them into the water. And everyone was there going, woo, yeah, we're going to do it. They all sounded like Joe Swanson from the family guy. They're, yeah, we're going to do it. Bring it on. And I'm thinking, oh, great. Because Melissa will tell you that there's not much I'm afraid of. Snakes don't bother me. Spiders don't bother me. Rats don't bother me. I don't particularly like them, but they don't bother me. I was at the prime of my life. I was out running five to seven miles a day. I could bench 300. I could do 25 pull-ups. I could do all this stuff, but I do not like heights. I get up on an extension ladder, and I turn into a little five-year-old girl. I'm like, Shaking the ladder, my ankles turn into jello, and I just do not like it. So when she said, hey, great, we're going to have an opportunity to climb up a bunch of cliffs and jump, I am very uncomfortable at that point, and it just ruined me. Well, these guys were so excited, and I was thinking, I'm the new guy on the team. I have to get their respect and acceptance, so I'm going to play along and act like I really want to do it. So we got around the bend that she was telling us about, And she said, all right, we got up to the shore, and she goes, there are the cliffs. And everyone, me the most, was going, go ahead, Bob, show me the picture. We were going like this. And I remember thinking, oh, those cliffs are very high. Now, that's not me jumping off the cliff, and that's not the cliff itself, but I think you get the gist. But what I did was, 
like any, any newbie wanting to, to get the respect of his teammates, I jumped out of the raft and I ran up that trail like a mountain goat. And I got about, I don't know, three-fourths of the way up there. And I just turned around casually to see. I'm, I know my teammates are behind me, but I wanted to see how close they were to me. And I realized at that moment I was the only one on the trail. And I looked way down there at the raft, and they're going, hey, uh, you look great up there. Keep going. And I was thinking, you bunch of pansies. Here I was. I was the wimp in the group. And you guys that were talking so tough a little while ago are staying in the raft where it's safe. So I did the only thing I could do. Like an idiot, I went up the rest of the way, and I jumped off the cliff. And let me tell you, if you've jumped off a high enough cliff, when you hit that water, it feels like you're hitting a brick wall. I mean, some of you are every bit as crazy as I am. Well, that's what we did. And I realized at that moment, and as I was preparing these remarks, I thought that was a really good example of how people feel because you can talk really tough when you're talking theoretically. Yeah, we're going to go do that. Yeah, we're going to get revenge. Yeah, we're going to be tough. Yeah, we're going to beat them and all this. And you talk tough right up until you see the problem up close. And then you realize very quickly that maybe this is a little more than I can chew. Maybe this problem's a little bit bigger than I thought. So to illustrate that point, we're going to walk through some scenes in history. And what I want you to do is Look at all of these in a vacuum, meaning you don't know what happens next. Because if you're any student of American history, you already know how the outcome is. But I want you to look at things in a vacuum. This is Valley Forge, a horrible winter. Our guys were living in tents out in the elements. They were malnourished. They were under-equipped. They were poorly led. Uh, they were under-trained. And a lot of them had disease and sickness that overcame them. Meanwhile, the British were living in homes that they had commandeered in Philadelphia, which was only 25 miles away or so. The British were living indoors. They had fireplaces. They had, they had hot meals. Um, they had Wi-Fi, Netflix, and I think they had memory foam mattresses, too. They had it really good compared to our guys. And you have to look at that as a leader and go, man, this is... This is really tough. This is lousy. I mean, when you live in a tent, I mean, if you had to live in a tent three or four or five months, that gets old real quick when you're out in the elements. Go ahead, Bob. Let's fast forward 80 years. This is the Civil War, and that's a very macabre picture. I, I picked that because that showed the kind of stuff that Abraham Lincoln would have to look at from time to time. Historians will tell us that Abraham Lincoln was subject to severe depression, and he had to look at this type of thing, and he had to hear the war reports and all the body counts and everything, and he dealt in a leadership position with a war that was not popular in the North. Yeah, it was not popular at all, and in fact, for the first couple of years, the North proved itself to be inept over and over. The Southerners just were outrunning them, outshooting them. They, were out, they, they had more motivation. And it shows what a tough spot Abraham Lincoln was in. Now, remember, what we're trying to do is place ourselves in that moment and see what had to be overcome, not knowing the outcome of it all. 
This again is Pearl Harbor. Fast forward another 80 years. Now, Pearl Harbor was not just a one and done. Pearl Harbor was the first of a whole lot of bad news that came. Here's a newspaper from the following day. Okay, the headlines, yeah, pretty obvious. We all know about that. But it also, if you look at the, the next line, they bombed Hawaii, the Philippines, Guam, and Singapore. Now, we had a huge military presence in Hawaii, of course, where Pearl Harbor is, but also in the Philippines, much closer to Japan, and we also had a military presence in Guam. The Brits had Singapore as part of their empire, and they had a pretty good-sized presence there. So, yeah, it's not just Pearl Harbor. It was a whole bunch of places. And then if that's not bad enough, Germany and Italy decided to gang up on us, too. They all declared war on us, and, of course, we're thinking, hey, what do we do to you guys? And they just said, well, you know, we had this agreement worked out with Japan. And before long, they jumped on the bandwagon as well, and it forced our country and its generals to do something that no general wants to do, and that is fight a war on two fronts at the same time. Then it gets worse. Singapore. The British uh, uh, troops there completely gave up. They gave up 80,000 80, captured. And what's amazing is the Japanese force that they were fighting against was only one-third their size. The Japanese force was exhausted and almost out of ammunition, but they had completely psyched out the British, and they just quit. And when they did so, I'm sure they realized, wow, we should have just fought them. We would have won. This is the Bataan. It's also known as the uh, Philippines. We had a huge presence there, and they got chased down to what's called the Bataan Peninsula. We also called it Corregidor, where we had a, a, a small uh, enclave, and that's where they held out for a long time. They, they basically had to surrender, and here's what happened. 11,000 of them surrendered, and if they didn't, every one of them would have been slaughtered. The problem is, when they surrendered, they were still tortured, they were beaten to death, some were bayoneted, they were used as sword practice. I mean, it was a horrible example of human behavior. And then they were subjected to about three and a half years of uh, horrible conditions in a POW camp. Then we went and took it on the offensive. We went over and fought in Africa with our British allies, and we learned very quickly hey, these Germans know how to fight. They have better equipment, better leadership, and they have a lot of experience, and we didn't. And this picture is just a tiny little bit of the proof of that. Uh, we eventually got our act together, thanks in part to a guy by the name of George Patton who went there and took over the American forces and uh, had eventually triumphed. But at this time and place, it was not looking good. Now, remember, we're looking at this in just a vacuum. We're looking at it just like a snapshot. And you can see, hopefully, how desperate this appears and how it might affect the way you're looking at things, how it might cause you to think, is this really worth it? Is, is this struggle more than we can handle? Here is a battle we fought in the Pacific called Tarawa. It was when we were trying to do what's called an island hopping campaign. That, that uh, Marine in the uh, left is throwing a hand grenade, and I'll tell you what, if you're throwing a hand grenade at someone, it means you're really, really, really close to them. And that's not a good feeling. In battle, distance is your friend. I'm not sure distance is his friend right there. 
This is Saipan, another part of the island campaign. Look at the body counts. 3,500 killed, and that's just in the course of about two weeks. Now, these islands, we're not talking like some big thing that has hundreds of square miles. We're talking about an island you can walk from one end to the other in the course of a couple of hours, maybe. It was nothing but a bloodbath in some of these. And if you could imagine being in that situation, how stressful that must have been and how awful it was. This is back on the European continent, known as Operation Martin, uh, Market Garden. It was put together by British General Bernard Montgomery, and it was a very, very bold attempt to capture the area around Amsterdam and the, and the bridges le leading inward. The idea was to create a second supply line, and it was a very, very audacious plan, and it was also an unmitigated disaster. Just about every soldier that was committed to that battle, whether they were American, British, or Canadian, was either killed, wounded, or captured. Peleliu was another battle out in the Pacific. Once again, the Marines took this one at a huge cost. Peleliu was not a very big island at all. It had an airstrip on it, and that's about it. Does anyone know the significance of the date uh, December 16th, 1944. What's that? Battle of the Bulge. It was an offensive in uh, Belgium that the Germans started. It came as a complete surprise attack to us. And it, uh, we were, we were kind of hunkered down for the winter time, and, and we were hoping, yeah, the Germans aren't crazy. They're going to want to hunker down, too, and just rest until the spring when they can... Uh, uh, refit and start over again, but the Germans realized, hey, if the Americans are hunkered down, this is a great time to attack. The Battle of Bulge centered around the small town of Bastogne, uh, Belgium, and it was an incredible siege that went on for weeks. The 101st Airborne held on by its fingernails and managed to keep the Germans from taking over that town. That town was key because it was the crossroads of seven different roads that went to all parts of Belgium. And that was why once they realized they could not hold that town, the attack itself, the whole campaign failed. I think everyone here knows this picture, the flag raising at the Battle of Iwo Jima on Mount Siribachi. This was done by the Marines. Uh, in February 1945, and it's, it's just an iconic picture. But the problem of this picture is this, is we look at this and they go, yeah, they won, great. But they didn't see any of these pictures because there's hundreds more pictures like this than there were of the flag raising. And if this was high def enough, you could probably look and see a whole lot of Marines that had fallen in battle because they couldn't even get off the beach in some places. The Japanese were shelling them so much with artillery, it was just a death trap. And then we move on to Okinawa, one of the bloodiest battles ever. It was supposed to be done in about three weeks, but it took about three months. And, and it was just incredible. The, the carnage that went on. Those are the pictures from World War II. Does anyone feel like, wow, this is really ugly? I mean, and this went on for years. Do you, do you understand what a huge undertaking that would be? 
Well, it, go, it gets worse because then when Korea, five years later, our Marines got surrounded by a Chinese communist force that was about five times their own size, and they had lots of casualties to show for it. Go further into history in Vietnam, we had the siege of Quezon. And then again, the Marines were surrounded by a, a, a huge force of Viet Cong. They were shelled pretty much around the clock for several weeks. And then we get the Tet Offensive, and that was a time when the, the Viet Cong counterattacked. They did their own offensive. Now, here's what's interesting about this. This picture and a lot of pictures like it were shown to the American public back here in the States, and it created such an upsurge of anti-war feelings that it caused us to say, hey, we're done as, as the American people, as the public. But it's very important to honor our military, to acknowledge the fact that the, our military did not lose this battle. In fact, within a few days, they pushed them all the way back and inflicted very, very heavy casualties on them. The key is this, is this picture caused the American people to lose their will to fight. And when the American support for the military goes away, then the military is not going to be able to hang on for a whole lot longer. This is what I'm getting at, is when we see things that are so tough, at a certain point it might lead us to say, I'm done. This is Fallujah in Iraq, much more recent. It was a very, very tough battle. There, there's, uh, I believe, some Marines there, and they got some... Uh, uh, heavier uh, uh, machine guns and everything ready to take the fight to the enemy, but it was a very rough battle. In the Helmands in Afghanistan, I knew someone that was killed there. If you were in the military, I, I bet you do too, because that was a really, really uh, rough battle that we fought. And then here is Sangin in Afghanistan as well. That was one of those things that dragged on forever. It was just such a tough fight. And then we close by showing again the reason we're talking about this. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing how, how tough this is. And you look at this and it, it just becomes very, very hard to go on. And you find yourself asking the question, you know, where do you get your strength? Is there a point where we feel the burden is too great? Yeah, maybe. I don't know if these pictures might have taken you there. Where in your own mind you're going, I, I can't deal with this anymore. If I were the, if I were the leader of the country, I'd, I don't know that I'd have it in me to keep going. Go ahead. And that's how it is when you're tired. You know, when you're exhausted, you're hungry, you're cold and wet you're discouraged. That's when you start to question your own will the most. You young folks that play sports and everything, and you're, you're practicing through an injury, you know, it's a hot day, you're out there doing two-a-days and things like that. You know, you're staying up all hours of the night, I don't know, studying for an organic chemistry test or something like my daughter has had to. There's times where you wonder, gee, I hope this is worth it because this is taking a real toll on me right now. Do you ever wonder during those times if God is on your side? And Abraham Lincoln was asked this, this very question. Hey, do you think God is on the side of the Union? 
And he replied, Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. And I just want to say, well done, President Lincoln. Well done. That reply shows me two things about this this man that we we admire so much. Number one, he had a, a very, very deep belief in God. And number two, he had incredible wisdom. The Bible tells us to believe in God is the beginning of wisdom. If you are wise, you do believe in God. And that shows me a lot about Abraham Lincoln. The Bible is just full of verses that will give you encouragement. And if you don't believe it, believe me, because I went through these trying to pare it down to just a few, and the hard part was not finding a verse that gave encouragement. The hard part was whittling it down to which ones I was going to use. So read with me, if you will. The first one is, is commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. And the second one is just the NIV and, uh, translation of the same verse. Commit to the Lord whatever you do and your plans will succeed. And I was looking at the study notes for this verse and I saw something that was very, very important. And the word commit is a key word. And it doesn't just mean, all right, God... Um, I'm going to go buy this lotto ticket, and I'm going to do it in your honor, of course. And uh, if I were to win, I promise you I'm going to give you 50 bucks. And if you'll help me get the winning numbers, I'll commit everything to you, Lord. Well, that doesn't mean much. It depends upon where your motive is, where your heart is, what is making you really want to do this. And if that isn't there, I'm not sure he's going to be backing you 100%. You might get lucky, sure. But I don't know that he's going to be really saying, yeah, I'm, I'm there for you because, I, I, yeah, I want you to have that new Corvette, the new Ferrari and everything else that you didn't earn. And I just want you to enjoy it. I don't know that, that, that that's going to be there. And the, and the, the second line of the NIV translation is, and your, and your plans will succeed. All right. Never does it say it's going to be easy. It just doesn't say that. Oh, yeah. All you got to do is take that turn at the fork, you're going to be good. And if I were to go back to my hillbilly roots and use a translation, it'd be like, yeah, all you got to do is put that bad boy in neutral, cruise on down the hill. You won't even have to brush your brakes. By the time you cross the finish line sometime around noon, we're going to have chicken and dumplings and fried green tomatoes. It's not like that. It's tough. In fact, there's a verse in uh, Proverbs that says, for a righteous man falls seven times and rises again. Now the word righteous, I think we can borrow from that and say, okay, if he's righteous, then his mind's in the right place. He's committed everything properly to God. And guess what? There's going to be days you still get knocked down. But what do you do? You get back up. And you might get knocked down again. What do you do? You get back up. But there's still going to be days. It's going to be on those days probably where you're going to be saying, hey, God, where are you? I mean, have you forgotten about me? Do you even care about me? And once again, there's plenty of verses in your Bible that'll tell you what to think. One comes out of Psalm 
Psalm 32, I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. That's pretty reassuring, isn't it? That you know God's saying, I'll be there with you. I'm going to even show you which way to go. Isaiah says, I will sustain you and I will rescue you. That too is very reassuring. Deuteronomy says, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. And lastly is the one from Hebrews that I selected. He himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? And I love verses like that because they apply not only at a macro level, which is our entire nation, our entire world, it also applies at a micro level. My guess is just about everyone here in this auditorium right now is struggling with some type of burden or a goal, and it's not going well. Things aren't going well at work. Maybe things aren't going well at home. And you're thinking, hey, God, I'm, I'm trying to do the right thing here. Are, are you with me on this? And it's at those moments that you can look and say, you know, this verse right here, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. That sure doesn't sound like a God who's going to be there one day and not there the next. It sure doesn't sound like a God that's saying, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll keep an eye on you. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll check in on you from time to time. He's saying, I'm going to be there all the time. My God, your God, is a promise keeper. He has made hundreds, thousands of promises to us in the course of the Bible, and he's never once failed to deliver. The only ones that he hasn't delivered are the ones he has yet to fulfill. He has a pretty strong track record, and you can put your faith in him. I'm going to turn this over to Chris and the, uh, the band here in a second, but I just want to reemphasize for those of you that might be struggling with something, it could be anything. We have a wonderful staff here at ORBC, and Pastor G will be happy to speak with you directly and, and possibly hand you off to someone that has experience in that exact field, knows what you're going through, and can help you deal with it. And I sure hope you take advantage of that, because this is a very, very caring family here. Thank you very much for letting me be here today. Randy, I just want to thank you. Thank you for being here today, taking the opportunity to come see us. It's good to see you again. Uh, let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you so much for today. Just thank you for the opportunity we have to be here, just to be able to serve you, Father. Um, Lord, I thank you for today. I just thank you for, for what it represents. Lord, I, I, I just pray that um, those that are um, still remembering, those that are uh, still dealing with loss, Lord, that you would just comfort them. You'd always be with them, Lord. You are faithful, and, we, uh, and we're assured of that, Lord, and we thank you for that. Father, I just pray for uh, our first responders. I thank you so much for them. Thank you for uh, what they do, and every day um, stepping out to, to serve. Uh, Father, I just pray for their safety. I pray that you'd watch over and protect them, be with their families, give them comfort and peace. 
Father, thank you so much for who you are. Please go before us this week and just bless the um, tithes and offerings that are received. They would further your kingdom. In your name we pray. Amen.